You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. I love learning how magicians work. Not the magic tricks so much as everything around the magic tricks. They have to use their powers of performance to basically convince you to make certain decisions that you're not aware you're being persuaded or almost hypnotized into making these decisions. They have to misdirect. They have to entertain. They have to convince you that you're seeing real magic. And the techniques for that are not just good for magic, but they're good for public speaking. They're good for, in my case, I've experienced them in stand-up comedy, but also in everyday social situations when you want to wow and amaze people or persuade people or create a feeling of anticipation around what you're going to say and do. Anyway, I talked specifically with the magician, Steve Cohen, not my old producer, Steve Cohen, but another, or not the billionaire, Steve Cohen, or not the congressman, Steve Cohen, but Steve Cohen, the magician, who I once saw do a magic show uh, many years ago. He's really great. He's done 5,000 magic shows in New York City. Some of the stuff he's told me just blew my mind. And then he even did a trick on me. 
Here's what he did. He he listed five things. I I, I had to say five, four things that were true and one thing that was lying, and he picked out the lie instantly. He describes this and many other techniques, very specific techniques that are useful, not just sleight of hand stuff, but useful techniques for controlling whatever situation you're in. So here's the great magician, Steve Cohen. Three of them were used in the TV show. One of them was never used in the TV show. And that's the one that um, this wealthy client of mine happens to own. So um, he lives so in So he, he, he bought the Batmobile like in an auction or something? Uh, he bought the Batmobile actually directly from the builder. And um, it's the only one that's actually built with a proper engine. It's not plexiglass. It's not, I mean, fiberglass. There are fiberglass Batmobiles that were made just for car shows and for appearances in shopping malls and stuff like that in the 60s. But this is one that's actually kind of was the rogue Batmobile that was never used, but it could actually drive on the highway. Does it have fire come out the back? Yeah, you can do it. it he actually didn't have it set up, but yeah, it's all set up that you could actually flip a switch and then there's like a propane tank in the back that, or butane that shoots out fire from the, the little rear port. It was, it was a dream come true. And so you, did you drive it? I sat in the driver's seat and took a bunch of photos, but then I sat in the passenger seat as we drove around Detroit. And here's the part that's interesting. So this, the guy who owns it uh, asked if, if, he, you know, if I wouldn't mind looking behind me. There was a SUV, a black SUV, uh, that was being <laughs> driven by his security guy, who's like an ex-FBI CIA guy, to make sure that we have you know, security. Because when you're driving around downtown Detroit, you're in trouble already. But then if you're driving around in a, the Batmobile, <laughs> you know, it's an extra level of craziness. Man, that must've been fun. So, so Steve, I have a bunch of notes in the book. So occasionally I may look away to look at uh, my notes. Sure thing. Did you get the other books that I gave to Jay that uh, to send down? Yes, to you? I got the Win the Crowd book. Cause I gave this one to Jay also. This book from Asseline, you know, Asseline, the publisher. Oh, I'm sure um, I got book. it, but you know what? I didn't see that. Like my family opens the packages and then the books disappear. But I, I saw the win the crowd. Too bad. This is actually the thing that might just came out recently and forward was written by Guillermo del Toro, the film director. And he actually had me after doing this forward for the book, he actually then asked me to be in his next film. So I had two scenes with uh, Bradley Cooper acting uh, in his next film coming out in December. Now, let me ask you a question. Bradley Cooper, I think he's a good actor. Like, did he, did it feel to you like he was a good actor? He was fantastic. Um, like, what was, was he it, fantastic? Oh, he, like, like, he was so uh, friendly. Like, he was like, you know, for an A-list celebrity, he could have just blown off everyone on the set. He came right over to me. He walked up, shook my hand in the beginning of our, our two scenes together. And it was just two, two of us. It wasn't like you know, an ensemble. It was just you know, Bradley Cooper and me. And um, so he came over, he shook my hand. He said, Steve, I've heard so much about your show. I'm sorry I missed it because he was supposed to come to the show at the palace with Guillermo del Toro. He missed it because he had babysitting issues. So he's like, I'm so sorry. I had to take care of my daughter, um, but I'm going to come back to your show uh, you know, as soon as we can. So that was just great. And then in between each take, Bradley Cooper was just cracking jokes and making me feel really comfortable, you know, because when you're around a celebrity, sometimes, you, you know, big A-list celebrity, you can freeze up a little bit. Right. So he was making everybody at ease and especially me. We had a great rapport. Oh, that's, that's awesome. So, and what was it like uh, acting in a movie? Did you feel like you could do it? Like, you you know, you're, you're a performer, but sometimes performers aren't necessarily good at pretending to be other people, which is what acting is. 
It's true. That's true. Now, fortunately, I, I had a lot of acting in high school and a little bit in college. Um, so, you know, I know I understand the idea of getting into a part, but I had what would be considered a cameo. It was an uncuttable cameo is what Guillermo del Toro called it. So, you know, uh, I didn't really have to do too much character uh, development or training for that part. The one thing that was great about being in the film was learning how to be directed by an Academy Award winning director. And that's a whole different experience. For example, there was one scene where I was leaning in towards Bradley Cooper and we took the shot and everything. And then after that, then Guillermo yells cut. And he says, now I want you to do the same scene again, exactly the same, but put all of your weight on your back foot, on your left foot. And I didn't think that would mean anything different. I mean, what's the difference between putting your weight on your front or putting your weight on your back? But it actually shifts the dynamic between the two characters, even that small shift of weight. And um, it really made a difference for the overall picture of the screen. So even though it feels like you're only moving four or five inches, that even the four or five inches to the camera, into the eye, it looks like an entirely different scene. Wait, so I'm I'm trying to understand. So you were leaning towards Bradley Cooper in this scene, and obviously in most situations, someone would put all their weight on their front foot or most of their weight on their front foot. How do you put your weight on your back foot in that situation, and why would it make a difference? Okay, so so you know I talk about this in in the book um, Win the Crowd. So you know if you yes, put your I, feet I, at a forty five degree about, angle, right? Yeah. And so now you know you're you're probably your your pressure of your weight is is balanced pretty evenly. And so if you put your weight on your back foot on the the curved foot, the the angled foot, you know you you end up kind of leaning back away. Your shoulder is almost leaning uh, away from the audience, right? It's a little bit unsettling, right? It's, it feels a little bit like you're off balance. I'm doing it right now, and I know I'm doing it because I'm actually lifting up my front foot. Right, you're, you're, lifting, you're almost on your toe, right? And so you feel like you're almost off balance, you're like leaning back like maybe someone's about to push you. Um, and in that dynamic for that particular scene, it was better if I didn't look like I was too eager to help this guy. But when you're performing on stage, like when I'm performing on stage, I hardly ever am leaning back unless I want to create a rest position. And you know, with magic, it's all about tension and release, uh, creating those peaks and valleys of interest. So with, I mean, it's a similar thing in comedy, you know that better than anyone, James, right? So, you know, if you're, if you're always getting people too riled up, they can't relax. So it's helpful sometimes when you're, you lean into an audience and then you can lean back to let the moment kind of just settle and kind of gel. Yeah. So it's interesting because a lot of times, and I've seen quite a few magicians, including you, Steve. So I, I, uh, everybody should know, I saw you perform at the Palace Hotel. It was a great performance and uh, really had a fun time and uh, incredible magic, of course. But it, it really does strike me like a comedian or a salesperson or, you know, a politician have a lot of similarities to magicians. Like a comedian in particular, the, the magic trick is when, you know, you set up a premise and then they're expecting one thing but you, but the the punchline is really a misdirection in in the in using magic terminology. It's a misdirection so that it's a little bit of a shock to the system, and then they laugh once they understand that the misdirection is is funny. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, magic I think is predicated on surprise. And so if I tell you up front, I'm going to be locked up in these chains, and I'm going to escape from these chains. That was Houdini's act, right? The yeah. escapology. Um, there's nothing really magical about that. I mean, it's very impressive that someone can train themselves to do that, but there's no surprise at the end. So I don't know if you can call that magic. It may be more of an allied art of magic, but you know, magic really needs a surprise. And like a punchline in a joke is clearly, you know, a surprising ending, right? But it's always better if it's not 
telegraphed. And so I think that's where the beauty of magic is, is that, you know, people are expecting one thing, they get hit with something else, and that's where the, the kind of, uh, you know, cognitive uh, you know, dissonance arises and makes you laugh and makes you surprised. Well, well, that's that's the key thing is the real meaning, the real truth in what's happening can't be telegraphed until the last possible moment. So the real trick, you like, for instance, let's take the Houdini example. He says in the beginning, I'm going to lock myself in this thing and there's going to be chains around and it's going to go underwater and um, I'm going to be in a straitjacket. And then he's down there too long. Uh, you know, so, so it almost feels like the audience is thinking he didn't succeed. We got to break him out and it's going on and on and on. And then let's say he falls from the ceiling all wet while the crate is still down there. Well, here's the best version of that, James. That my, when, and this is very vivid memory for me from the 70s when I was a little boy. Um, Doug Henning, remember the hippie yeah, magician, yeah. illusionist with the mustache and the you know, sparkly suspenders. Um, he actually did a version of that Houdini water torture cell on one of his t television specials where um, he was locked inside of the water tank upside down. They put a cloth in front of it. By the way, I think I remember watching this, but go ahead. Right? And this is riveting. It was riveting television. Yeah. And and the the clock is ticking. They're saying Houdini's best time was you know one minute and thirty five seconds or whatever it was, and now it's pa ticking past that, beyond, beyond, beyond. And the guy comes out from the side with an axe, with a, a hood on, and he's ready to chop open the glass of that water's torture cell. And then they drop the cloth. The cell is empty, and the guy holding the axe was Doug Henning. So he had yeah. escaped and become his own savior. Right. So I think I think. It's always that, um, you know, what do they call that in, um, you remember that movie, The Prestige, they call that, uh, they, magicians never used this word before, I think, but in, the, in this movie, The Prestige, uh, Michael Caine uh, calls that moment The Prestige when- Yeah, that's, that's, like, like, that's an artificial, artificial yeah. terminology for the film. But, right. but yeah, but, I mean, but it, I like it's, the, it's a nice the way meaning of, of it. Sure, it's a nice way of putting, uh, creating a definition for that moment, for sure. So I want to I want to just say that a you're a great magician, but this book Win the Crowd is useful for any example in life. I was thinking at first in terms of stand up comedy. I have to actually perform tomorrow, but I was thinking um, then this is good for any social situation at all. Like, uh, and we'll get to some examples. But I was thinking about your thing of uh, loading the pocket, uh, where you basically put something in someone's pocket or shirt pocket or whatever, and it becomes a source of conversation later. And sure, it reminds sure. me, a, a lot of what you do is preparation for a possible moment later. Like you give the example of the magician, I think it was in Chicago, it was Jimmy Grippo, something Jimmy like Grippo. that. Yeah, and he throws, like the night before he's at the bank and he he's able to, he, he notices the vault door closing. So he just flips a card right through there, no one notices, and the, the nine of hearts is in the bank vault. And, then and, the, the very, and the vault is sealed with a time lock until the next morning. Right. And so the next day he goes to the bank and he kind of, um, you know, fans out some cards, pick a card, any card, and using magic techniques, he, for, he he's able to force them to pick the nine of hearts. They think they're picking a random card. And and then, he, you know, the card disappears or whatever. And, and later on, it's he sa he shows it in the locked, sealed vault. And they think he's, they just wait we witnessed a miracle. And exactly. so I, I like how, but, but there's an out also, if he got caught 
or observe throwing it in the nine of hearts, he just doesn't do the trick the next day. Right, the, or you just apologize. Oh, sorry. It's just, I was, it fell out of my hand. Yeah. So I like that. You, I like this idea of almost setting up, almost diversifying like lots of possible moments, future moments in your life. And I like this, this concept, like what's, what are other, and, and I know we're going out of order a little bit on, on the book, but this is a fascinating concept. Well, I can give you lots of examples. I mean, yeah. a lot of them come from the world of magic. Um, you know, one of my heroes is a man named Max Malini. Uh, Max Malini was alive in the late 19th century, early 20th century, died in 1942. But this guy, he performed for kings and queens. Uh, I actually wrote a 500-page book about him that's coming out in August. Um, oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah. Um, and anyway, so he used to go around the world, and what he would do was he would hide playing cards all sorts of odd places behind the pendulum of a grandfather clock in a hotel in Hong Kong, uh, underneath a carpet in some place in London. He'd go to you know San Francisco and he'd fold up a card and stick it inside of like you know uh, a barrel of butter. I mean like all sorts of places. And he kept notes of where he kept what cards. So when he went back to those cities, those places, those hotels, he walked in. And he was armed. He was basically armed, right? He, he was ready to go perfor to perform miracles because he had basically seeded the entire world with cards in cool places and odd places that people would never have expected that he could have prepared. I, I love that idea. Now, what would you do if, let's, let's bring it to, um, you know, you're not a magician. Let's say you work in an office with a hundred different people, or let's say, you know, now everyone's remote working. So let's say you have a bunch of friends like how would you, how would you use this technique even amongst your friends? But one of the things that I taught in Win the Crowd was um, if you have any sort of fear of interacting with other people, and a lot of people are kind of you know they're they're comfortable enough dealing with strangers, but not really to the degree that a professional would be, like a professional salesperson, a professional comedian, a professional magician, someone who's used to dealing with the public in general. Um, you know, is different from the average person who's not really as comfortable maybe dealing with strangers. So one of the things I taught in the book was to hide a, uh, a quarter in your hand, okay, in your, in your fingers, behind your, 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 in your finger palm area. And then when you meet someone, just during the course of conversation, pat the person on the shoulder and try to drop that coin into another person's pocket or into their purse or into their jacket pocket or some place that, that you can you can reach without making it seem too awkward. And the reason for doing this is to feel that you're kind of in control of that situation. It's like you have some inside knowledge now that the other person doesn't have. Like you've invaded their space, but you've done nothing illicit, right? You haven't stolen anything from them. What this would be called in magic is not pickpocketing, but putpocketing. And what it does is it just gives you extra confidence when you're dealing with people. Like there's no need for me to be afraid of this person. I've already entered their world. Does that work? Like, do you like, so I, like right now I'm imagining doing it, but you know, as is the case in many situations, you don't really experience something until you do it. You don't even, you don't yet, you don't. So I haven't yet experienced the feeling. Like, does it change your feelings in the situation? It does. It makes you feel powerful. I mean, when the same way that, that Max Molini performed with you know, having the, the card behind the pendulum and the grandfather clock and walking into that room knowing that he's got some ammunition he has something ready to go it gives you it gives you a kind of a sense of confidence that you probably haven't felt before because it's almost like a like the tingling anticipation before uh meeting someone on a date for the first time like you're like what's this going to be like how's it going to go don't worry i've got this covered that's how it feels yeah that that that's super interesting so now um i'll let me go to some of the things i've highlighted first off i want to cover the maxims of magic which aren't 
you know, you, you talk about, you know, magicians don't reveal their tricks, don't repeat a trick, whatever. But these maxims of magic are very interesting. It's uh, be bold, expect success, don't state, suggest, um, practice, 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 and be prepared. And I want to deal with the first, third, and fifth. Be bold. Okay, sure. <laughs> yeah, so, so, so being bold sometimes, like you go onto the stage and you have to kind of exude confidence that you own the stage somehow. You can't let the audience think you're, you're nervous, for instance. You have to exude confidence. And let's say someone's going into a conference room with all their bosses and they're asking for a raise. So a very difficult, high-stakes situation, maybe akin to performing. How can they be bold? In this case, I wouldn't necessarily call it being bold. What I would talk about in this case is giving the person a sense of confidence. And the way that to do that, at least what I do, um, first thing is to be familiar with the surroundings, the physical surroundings. You know, if you're going to do a show someplace, it's always helpful to what they call tread the boards in advance, to get to the place early, walk around the space, feel like you actually own the space to some degree, even if it's not your own office or your own stage. You know, I've got my own showroom, right? So I know where I'm going to be. It feels very comfortable. But when you're performing or if you're entering someone else's space, if you could somehow get into that area a little bit early just to feel confident about knowing the parameters of the space, I've always found that to be helpful. Um, the other part also is, um, is before you enter the room, and I do this off stage in my own shows, is I like to do a, a very deep breathing exercise. And this may sound silly or pointless, or it may sound superfluous to someone who's trying to ask for a raise. But, you know, a lot of times we go into situations and we look a little deflated because we may not even believe in ourselves. So what I often do is backstage before I'm walking on is I'll do three very deep breaths. Uh, I learned this from yoga class when I was in college, but, you know, you take a deep breath first, filling up the uh, the bottom of your lungs and the middle of your lungs and the top of your lungs. And then while you're still kind of full of all this air, that's when I walk like, walk into the room. And I call this floating into the room because you're so full of air at that point. It's like you're a balloon. And believe it or not, it actually helps you exude confidence. Are, are you um, you're still on the inhale when you walk into the room? Yeah, I'm, I'm like just at the peak of like at the peak of being ex fully expanded. So, you know, obviously at that point, then you want to probably let it all out, but you, <laughs> but that would you know make you look a little deflated. So I like to walk in at the peak of that last breath and then I walk right in with a nice, nice big smile. And are you, you must be exhaling while you, while you walk in. Um, I, I don't like to exhale. I mean, I, I just walk in. I mean, obviously you have to eventually exhale, but I don't like to walk in looking like I'm like, going, oh, here we finally are. It's more like I'm walking in with this great, almost like a, like a theme song in my head. I'm going to go in there and and uh, show them something that they've never seen before. You know, I I was thinking about this while I was reading this section. Like, obviously, and I and I've seen you perform. Obviously, uh, you're projecting enjoyment and confidence, and that you really appreciate that the audience is there. But sometimes I've seen other performers do almost the opposite and achieve almost the same effect. Like you walk in and you say, "Well, now." I'm just making this up, but well, now after seeing you guys, there's one thing I know for sure. I wish I was home. <laughs> and, you know, like, and sometimes the audience laughs and they appreciate that also because it sounds really authentic. They don't feel insulted, in other words. Sure. Yeah. It, I mean, it, it just depends on what type of a character you've created and what you're portraying. And you know, in my case, you know, I want people to feel welcomed and I want the audience to gel quickly. 
um, one way to do that would be to antagonize everyone and or or to show like your your own disdain for being there, I suppose. But like in my case, I really I I love doing my show. And remember, I've done the show over five thousand times. It go close to six thousand performances. Um, when I did my five thousandth show, the mayor of New York declared a day in my honor called Chamber Magic Day, um, wow. which was pretty exciting. I have a proclamation on my wall. I think that was De Blasio's best proclamation. Maybe yeah, the only one with actual positive consequences. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, um, but but any in any event though, you know, yes, you could definitely gel an audience by you know making them kind of feel uh, some antagonistic views towards you. But I found that the opposite works for my personality. Yeah, and I guess I guess if you really uh, exude authentic disdain, they might not like you. It's just more of a joke and they, and they become curious. Sure, or sure. There's a, maybe it's a mystery. Is he really serious or not? It's an artistic choice. Like, you know, because the character I play on stage is an extension of myself. So, you know, you might remember, you know, I'm known as the millionaire's magician. Yes. And, and this may seem like it's crass. It may seem like it's, uh, you know, kind of bombastic to call that. But, you know, the character that I'm playing performing in a Victorian age ballroom uh, where I'm wearing a white tie and tails and, you know, everyone expects to see someone who's of that era of that time. Uh, you know, someone who's walking off the Titanic, for example, um, if, if it ever landed. Uh, so the point being that, you know, people have an expectation and I try to meet that expectation. If I was performing for farmers in the Midwest, I'd probably call myself a farmer's magician. Well, you know, it, it's funny though, like you talk about, um, you know, you have a chapter on commanding the room and a little bit is, or, or I, I am interpreting a little is that you almost want to seem a little larger than life. Like, you know, you have the chapter, stick your, your neck out. And it, would that be a, a, a correct interpretation? Like I was trying to figure out, like sometimes, you know, you also write about this guy, Al Reese, who, who advises that you pair away everything in your personality that is superfluous to your target market. So what, what do you do when you're trying to kind of craft this larger than life personality? Well, here's what happened with me. Um, so, you know, like I mentioned, I started off doing magic uh, for birthday parties, bar mitzvahs, corporate events. And, you know, I was just like every other magician. I, I was kind of a generic magician. And I talked with my best friend who happens to be a marketing uh, consultant, a guy named Mark Levy, who's really a genius. Uh, you should meet him. And uh, Mark said to me, he said, what's different about you? Like, what, why, why would one, anyone want to hire you as opposed to any other magician? What makes you special? Why, what, how would you be uh, you know, def defined uh, in specific and easy terms? And I said, well, I mean, I grew up in Chappaqua, New York, right? This fancy part of, fancy suburb of, uh, of Manhattan. And most of my clients are very wealthy. He goes, tell me more about that. And I said, well, I performed for David Rockefeller at his estate in Pocantico Hills. And I've done lots of performances for uh, A-list people in country clubs, et cetera, et cetera. And he said, stop right there. He says, you need to be, you need to change everything. You need to focus on being the magician for the filthy rich. And I said, if I call myself the magician for the filthy rich, I'm not going to get paid any, no, I'm not going to make any, you know, gigs. I won't have a single client. He said, see, Steve, if you aren't willing to give up the $2,000 gig, you'll never get the $20,000 gig. And I said, Very okay, that's a good point. And I said, you know, I can't call myself the magician for the filthy rich because it's really outlandish. 
But I remembered that a, a magazine article had been written about me in Avenue Magazine, and they called me the millionaire's magician. And I said, I could call myself that. He goes, that's it. He said, drop everything. He said, I want you to uh, make business cards. I want you to write, make stationery. I want you to call yourself the millionaire's magician. And I said, no way. Uh-uh, not happening. Uh, my parents said it was stupid. My wife said it was a, st a stupid idea. Everyone I talked to, all my friends said, you know, they gave it the kibosh. And he said, listen to me, trust me. This is what you need to do. Just trust me. So anyway, at the, around that time, I went to England and I did some shows uh, for a whole month in London doing shows um, for the public. And the British media ate it up. They said, there's the millionaire's magician visiting from New York City, performs at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel, the millionaire's magician, performs for, you know, all these, these A-listers. And um, when I came back to New York, it was like a reverse import. And you know, the media reads the media. The, the New York media now is reading the, the British press, and they were saying, the millionaire's magician is back. And it reminded me very much so of when um, Houdini went to Europe, and he came back. He was known as Europe's eclipsing sensation. And mm. that was he was a reverse import. You know, Houdini was, it was an American, uh, but he was a reverse import, having had great success overseas. So anyway, that was kind of what started off my differentiation here. And that's sticking your neck out. Like I did something that was very uncomfortable for me. Um, and, and that's, you know, basically just setting up a shingle and saying, I'm worth, I'm worth it. And, you know, of all the great things you can do in New York City, it takes guts. It takes real, real balls to hang up a shingle in New York City and say, this is what you need to come to, as opposed to going to Hamilton or the producers at that time, or any of the big Broadway shows going to Carnegie Hall. Instead, I think you should come to the magic show. You see what I mean? Yeah, and 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 so the the section right after that says uncover your hidden traits, which I I agree is also very interesting. Like, what makes you unique? It, it's like you said earlier. Why would someone come to see you as opposed to let's say another magician? Like, what? So on the one hand, there's there's the branding, the millionaire's magician, but then there's kind of the inner stuff that. Sure. What makes you unique as a personality or as a magician? And what what would you say were those hidden? And by the way you call it, you, you describe this as a process of self-discovery. I think everyone should do this because yes. not everyone's going to go into, um, you know, wear a clown suit and go into a conference room and ask for a raise. Of course like, not. it's not, it's not about that. It's about bringing out these traits that are integral to who you are, but haven't been revealed yet. That's right. Yeah. It's definitely a self, a process of self-discovery. Obviously everyone has a true self, a tr kind of an inner core, and we're often confused about who that is. Now, I happened to find my inner core very young. Knowing it very young allowed me to refine, refine, refine over the years. But I know people who are my age, I'm 50, who still are working on that. They still don't know exactly who they are. And they're kind of just floundering and wandering. And and uh, and it's it's very confusing for me. Like, why what's taking you so long? But I guess certain people have their own path. What do you think your hidden, like, what were your hidden traits that you uncovered even at such a young age? Well, you know, I was always, I always had what my aunt, my, my great uncle was a magician. He was an amateur magician. And his wife, my aunt Viola, once said to me, Steve, you know what you have? You have the gift of gab. And that, that stuck with me. And so I always knew I would be a talking performer. And, um, you know, when it comes down to it, like in my environment, like I'm in total control. Uh, off stage, you know, I tend to just kind of casually banter with people and chitter chatter. But I still love to have a good laugh with people and have a you know have a fun time. And I know that you know you know that world because you live in the comedy club you know scene. You know, there's certain people that are just really good with banter, and and I love that whole that all the back and forth and the 
Broadway, Danny Rose, you know, back groove. Like for me, that's that's what life is is worth living for. So for me, like finding that part was 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 integral. Knowing that I had what was called the gift of gab. But the other part was knowing that I was dedicated enough to practice. And you know, finding uh, you know, finding that part of myself, knowing that you know, I'm not shy about saying it's going to take me ten thousand hours, for example, right? Uh, just pulling out a random number here, ten thousand hours. Um, to learn how to do this invisible sleight of hand move that no one will ever see, but I'm fine with that. It's it's you know it, that's the, the the crazy thing about being a magician is that the art is concealing that art. So you're, I'm working so hard to, to to create something that you'll never see, and I'm fine with that. And you, that's also why you don't have a chance because I've put in let's say ten thousand hours for something that takes maybe a three second interval interval of your time. So what are the odds of you actually catching me on that, right? It's just, it's an unfair advantage. You know, it's, it's interesting. You mentioned the practice, practice, practice maxim. Uh, and one of the subsections, uh, when you talk about that is practice your outs. And I think this is incredibly valuable. Do you want to describe what outs are? Cause by the way, this is great for entrepreneurs. This is great. If in a social situation, this is great if you're asking for a raise, but it's particularly important for magicians. Yes, I can explain what an out is. So there was a great book that came out, I think, in the maybe the 1940s or 50s, uh, that's called Outs, Precautions, and Challenges. It's a book for magicians, and it teaches what do you do if the trick goes wrong? What do you do when the trick goes south? What happens if you have an audience that challenges you and they, they're aggressive and they purposely foul things up? So, you know, the idea of a magic show is you always have to come up with a successful conclusion. Otherwise, it's not a magic trick. It's, it's, it's not magic, it's tragic. So the idea really is to have in your, the back of your head a plan B, C, D, E, and F. And these plans are called outs. And those are basically the, the avenue that you would take if your original plan doesn't go well. So the difference being that you should never let the audience know that you're going down one of those outs. So uh, you know, if, if a trick goes wrong, I shouldn't be like, oh, rats, it fouled up. But here, let me resolve it. That's, that's a really poor way of doing it. You know, what you need to do is you need to live in the moment, right? You need to be using uh, kind of a uh, time to your advantage uh, in, with situational awareness so that you're kind of like seeing what's happening before it happens and looking back at yourself kind of almost from the future to see where it's going and say, oh, crap, this isn't going the way I need it to go. I'll stay calm. I'll stay collected. But now I'm going to take plan B and the audience will never know the difference. And that's really what the key is, that it, it's a seamless transition into plan B or C. And, and it might be a branching anagram, right? Where like you're going from plan B and then go, oh, plan B isn't working either because these people are on to me. Now I'm on to C. But again, it has to be seamless. People can't know that there's anything that's, that's off kilter. Uh, and that's really where the, the, the practice comes in. So you have all of these different outs ready to go and they're, they're planned and not a surprise to the performer. What I notice, for instance, in the comedy world is that sometimes someone will slip up the wording in a joke and have to, you know, and, and like you say, you can never admit it. Uh, you never, you never could say, wait, let's rewind. Let me start that joke over. And you have to kind of just roll with what you're doing. But then that in itself becomes funny somehow. Like you, you, and I've seen Louis CK, um, slip on some words and then go off into a whole other segue based on the, the word usage that he did. That was, it seemed like an accident. And then you realize later, or when I was thinking about it later and analyzing the performance, I realized that was probably planned. His plan B was actually what seemed like his plan B was actually his plan a probably. Right. Absolutely. I've, I've heard that about Louis CK 
Um, and and that's isn't that brilliant that uh, you know what appears to be a mistake is actually the the intended route. That's really great. Um, you know, I've I've never done it that way precisely, but with magic, it's it's there's a trope in magic which is the magician is in trouble, and because the magician is in trouble, apparently, then the audience gets really they lean in from their seats, going, "Oh, how is he going to get out of this?" But that trouble was actually premeditated. So you know that it's it's almost it's such a trope that it's almost uh, callous to to do that to an audience, you know, especially if people are uh, seasoned magic watchers. And, you know, these days, because of the way the world that we live in, people have seen a lot of magic on YouTube or on uh, the Penn and Teller's School Us or other shows. Uh, you know, people are kind of getting hip to that idea of, okay, this guy's not really messing up. He's trying to make me, he's playing with my heartstrings. But the funny thing is, I've had situations uh, where I've genuinely messed up uh, a trick and the audience goes, okay, we know that you're just messing around with us right now. What, what are you really trying to say? And I'm like, no, no I genuinely messed up. Um, and so they're like, no, no, come on, really. And I'm like, no, really, I really did this up. So, you know, th that does happen. If you, The more you perform, the more likely that sort of uh, the percentage is going to be that you'll have a foul up. But, you know, you roll with it. You say, well, this is live theater. We're going to just keep moving on. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit, and I was so excited because side by side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit, where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides, like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours. And they, they were willing to pay for everything for me. So I, I, at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he, was trying to decide between 
some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see. You'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter, and I got nonstop Really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast and the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. How did you become a magician? Like, obviously you were interested in it. Like, like every kid is interested in it for some period of their childhood, but then you stuck with it, became obsessed. Like what aspect is talent? What aspect is skill? How did you stay persistent when things were difficult? Yeah, well, you know, uh, it's a great question. I started when I was six years old. Uh, my uncle, as I mentioned, was an amateur magician. And, um, you know, there was just something about, about, you know, being able to fool adults when I was a little six-year-old boy that made me feel very powerful. And the problem is that as you get older and you continue to do magic and become an adult yourself, um, you might, if you're still doing magic for that reason, you're in trouble, right? Because that's very needy. Um, but in my case, you know, I kind of realized that it wasn't about me. I really genuinely enjoyed giving people that reaction. I, I got a kick out of watching the reactions of the audience's faces because, you know, you can, if you're a comedian like you, you can make people laugh, right? That's like your, that's your currency. Um, Hopefully. Yeah. Hey, I haven't seen your act recently. <laughs> um, but if you're you know, a musician or uh, you can make someone tap their toes, but what a magician does is a magician makes you wonder. And you didn't get a chance to see my new book, but my new book from Asseline, um, it's, it's basically a book full of photography of audiences in shock, having watched the mag my magic show. And you see these black ovals, which are basically the people's mouths open because they're in such awe. And I'm not saying that it's because I'm such a great magician. It's because magic as an art form 
can generate that reaction. That's what magic does. It makes you feel like your bottom has dropped out and I just don't know where I am anymore. Am I living in a dream? What's going on right now? So that's, for me, that was like a drug. And I wanted to get more of that. And I wanted to give people more of that gift. So all through high school, I was performing uh, birthday party shows, like I mentioned. Uh, when I was in college, I went to Cornell, which I think you went to Cornell too. Am I right? Well, yeah, yeah. We've, when, did you, um, when did you start there? I'm a little older than you. Okay, yeah. I, I went there from 89 to 93. Okay, so I, um, I graduated in 89, so I, but I stayed the summer. So it could be the case that we overlap for one day. Yeah, there you uh, go. At Cornell. That's hilarious. <laughs> go Big Red. <laughs> um, and anyway, I, even at Cornell, I was doing shows. I did a show for Carl Sagan, who was a professor there at the time. Did you probably remember? Yeah, and I, I saw that in the book. So I actually, you know, was curious if we were there at the same time. But Oh, that's um, hilarious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll tell you the funny story about Carl Sagan. So, so when, he, um, when he called me, uh, it was my, I think it was the, the winter of my freshman, my sophomore year. Uh, and I got a, a call during winter break and the guy on the other line of the phone said, hi, this is Carl Sagan. Can I speak with Steve Cohen? And I thought this has got to be a prank of one of my college friends. Like there's no, there's no doubt in my mind that it's one of my college friends. And I, I picked up the phone and sure enough, it was really Carl Sagan. And, um, he asked me if I, he had heard about my close up magic. Uh, and he wanted to know if I could come in and perform for a group of visiting astrophysicists. And I was a little nervous because these are some of the brightest minds on the planet, right? These are some of the really brilliant uh, uh, minds in science. And so anyway, I came in, I gave my performance, gave a lecture about sleight of hand and misdirection, and at the end got a standing ovation, which for me was like one of the highlights of my career, um, not just as a college student, but my, my professional career. Believe me, that was the highlight of your college career as well, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, for sure. By far, by far. <laughs> but but then the best part, though, is I asked him afterwards, I said, uh, Professor Sagan, uh, do you think that you could write a letter of recommendation for me? Because, you know, coming from you, that would mean a great deal to me in my career. And he said, I'd be happy to write it for you. I said, OK, well, here's my address. He goes, no, no, I'll hang on to it. I said, well, what do you mean? What if I want to give it to someone? He said, I'll, I'll send it to them if, if it's necessary. I said, well, can't I have it? He said, don't worry, Mr. Cohen, it'll be in my vault. And my vaults will remain for a very, very long time. And anyway, then he passed away and I never was able to get that letter of recommendation. Oh my I gosh. Contacted so, his wife, his widow, and it just simply did, we couldn't find it. So anyway, it's lost to antiquity. You you should have said you, you should have said, look, even if you hide it from me, I'm a magician. I'm gonna be able to get it. And then maybe he would have given it to you. I know. I was thinking about that actually, right? Like Kreskin, right? Kreskin would have his paycheck hidden anywhere in the auditorium and then blindfolded he would go around the auditorium and, and locate his own check and by the way Kreskin also would say if i can't find my check then i don't get paid for this gig oh that's funny that's confidence right that's confidence now pe people wouldn't think he would know in advance that uh it was there where it was no no i mean because th there was a committee of people that they would confer amongst each other and they would hide it in some cockamamie place like they would hide it you know inside the stuffing of one of the person's seats in the auditorium that they like tear it open and then sew it back up or they hide it inside of like, you know, the flute uh, of someone in the, the, one of the flautists in the orchestra pit, you know what I mean? Like someplace that's really unlikely to find and he and would how, unfailingly find his check. How, how would he find it? Uh, that's something is, is it's uh, called muscle reading uh, to put it, you know, kind of in like the broadest terms. It's something where you touch the person who knows the answer and let their subconscious uh, muscles push you in the right direction around the theater that's that's the, the the cloaking of it when you're watching it on stage 
Ah, and is that possible that muscle reading could your could your muscle reading be so fine-tuned that you can really feel where their muscles are kind of pointing theatrically yes um it's it's certainly possible in a theatrical setting um it would be very difficult for someone who's not trained to do it um i mean there are subconscious signals that we give off all the time like you probably are familiar with the pendulum where the uh, the automotor cues from your fingertips are making the pendulum swing or turn into a circle or stop moving all sorts of shapes like an infinity shape. So you know, it's, it, it certainly is something that we're capable of doing. But on a stage, you know, of course, we can exaggerate and we can make things even more theatrical. So you, you have a chapter about uh, or a section about reading people. Um, like maybe describe that a little because that, of course, is something that people are fascinated by. There's lots of there's lots of BS books about reading body language and there's some real techniques out there that work. And what have you found to actually work and be good in, in any situation? Sure. Well, you know, one of the things that, that I do in the show is I give the illusion of being able to read people's minds. And you might remember that I have everyone in the audience. Uh, and this is at my shows at the Waldorf and my shows at the palace, a hotel where everyone is, uh, you know, asked to write down some secrets about themselves, whether it's, you know, where they had a secret tattoo or uh, maybe they, have some crazy addiction, or maybe they, uh, you know, did something odd uh, in their high school summer uh, vacation, and things that there's no possible way I could know, things that nobody could find about them on Facebook or on uh, on social media, uh, things that only they would know. And then I go around the room one by one and start to nail every one of those with with you know 50 or 60 people around the room, and I'm telling this person, your dog is named Penny, and you kissed a girl named Holly, and you know you have a tattoo of a uh, of an anchor on your left ankle and, and, and all these sorts of things. Um, one of my favorite ones, by the way, was when there was a lady and this is at one of my first shows um, who was very hesitant to let me read her mind because what she had written down secretly on her card was that she was a nanny during the daytime and at night she was a professional dominatrix. And nobody in the audience was expecting that, and certainly not me. So you saw these ladies in the front row turn their heads around and stare at the lady afterwards who had written that and in utter shock. Um, and, that's and, and you did this from reading them, or did you have, have was there some other trick involved, like you knew who put what into the hat? Oh, no, no, I, I, never, I never know anything in advance. I, that's the brilliance of, this, of my uh, uh, methodology for this, this particular trick. And again, I'm not going to give away any of the secrets, but but there is a secret to it. Um, it's a very intricate one. But and there's no technology, no hidden cameras. I can be, do this in the middle of a cornfield. Um, some people say, "Oh, you must have cameras planted around the room or hidden hidden devices." You know, the, my methods actually go back to uh, the easily the the 1400s, so the 1500s. You know, people so, were doing this sort of demonstration for centuries. But to answer so your question about reading people. You know, mm -hmm. obviously, most people are not going to become mentalists or mind readers or magicians. Um, you know, one of the things that you can really pay attention to is um, is is uh, what I like to call the the clenching of people's jaws and also the directions of people's eyes. And you know, when people feel tension, they tend to clench their jaw. Uh, I don't know if I read about this in the book, but you know, it's not. If you pay attention, it's very obvious. If you've never seen it before, you'll be shocked when you start to pay attention. But when someone is flustered or angry or upset, they start to clench their jaw and it, it changes the musculature of your face. And so you can start to see if someone's lying or telling the truth. Um, it's the same thing with the directions of the eyes. You know, if you ask someone a question and they start to look up before they answer, you know, uh, 
most likely they're starting to formulate some sort of an answer in their head, not something that they know, but something that they're kind of constructing on the spot. And um, for example, if I asked you right now, and I can see you um, on this on this recording, um, if I asked you right now, and this may or may not work because we're talking about this, as if I said, okay, I want you to tell me five things that you did this morning, but one of them has to be a lie. Huh. Okay. Um... So I just looked up actually just even thinking about the question, but um, uh, do you want me to do it? Or? Sure, we'll give it a try. I mean, I guess it's, it's be challenging only because I've already told you what, the, what I'm looking okay. for, but, but go ahead. And why don't you look at the camera while you're doing it too? Okay, yeah, I'll look at the camera. So I ate um, three hamburger buns, I, uh, 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 which I eat a lot of carbs. Uh, I watched several videos about uh, chess. I watched uh, some comedian videos and uh, I kissed my wife when she woke up. And I also asked my daughter how she's feeling today um, because she had her wisdom teeth pulled. Okay, the only one that you didn't you didn't shift your eyes on, which is interesting, was the one where you said I watched some comedian movies, comedian films. So that's really interesting. That's the one that was a lie. Yeah, so, exactly. So, so instead of looking up- But you see the differences uh, in this case, and I was just looking at you on the screen here and we're in different states. Yeah. So you're in Florida, I'm in New York. But still, yeah. even from that distance, I was able to tell you which one was a lie, right? So right. And that's interesting because eyes. you know I'm interested in comedy. You don't necessarily know if I have kids or any, anything else. And uh, uh, and yet you're saying that, so it's not so much the eyes looking up, it's the eyes doing, is this the one time the eyes are doing anything different? Right, and but remember, since I happened to call attention to it in advance, you might have genuinely mm. been flicking your eyes around to to counterbalance that, you know, to kind of throw me off. So I no, was, you know why I was, I was able to, you, to find the one that was the atypical response in this case. You, you know why I was moving the eyes around actually, because uh, I was thinking of this while it was happening. I wasn't trying to do anything tricky or fancy. I have trouble remembering what I did in the morning. <laughs> like I can remember what I ate for breakfast, maybe on a random day when I was seventeen years old, but. This morning, I can't really remember so well because, you know, the day gets packed and you of sort course. of discard short-term memory sometimes. And so um, so the, the, I had to remember, for I had to think about what I actually did, whereas the lie, I've just made it up on the fly. There you go. You see? that, that but you, you, you tried hard, but you couldn't give me a porky pie. Yeah, there you go. So, so all right, so, but, but back to um, what you did to become a magician, like what were some of the, let's call them micro skills, like what did you have to learn and really practice to get on this road to mastery of your power? <laughs> um, well, uh, I don't know where that power leads me, but uh, I'm not gonna overtake the world. <laughs> but, you know, one of the things that I always wanted to do was I always wanted to make a difference, right? So, you know, being a magician is fine, but I wanted to be you know, a noted magician. I, wanted, I had kind of these lofty dreams of being recognizable, being when people think of a magician, they think of me. And so, you know, I think having that great sense of self-confidence is kind of the baseline. It's the, you know, the self-love or self-worth. That's really important to, if you want to become a performer, um, you have to already feel loved on your own without the need for another audience to, mm. uh, to kind of validate you. I mean, it certainly helps when you, when you get that response, but I don't think it's it's a, it's something that that should be what feeds you. Your your what feeds you really is your own self confidence, your own self worth, and your own self love. So that that actually helped me early on, having a good family that always supported me when I wanted to go out and do a magic show. You know, most Jewish parents, like obviously my last name Steve Cohen, uh, of a Jewish family. Yeah, you know, most Jewish parents want to have a a physician, but they mine ended up with a magician. 
So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, the point being that that they were always really supportive of of shows. They would drive me before I had my driver's license to do performances. So I think that's kind of the baseline first is having a support team, people who really care about you, that they support you. Even if you're trying to do something which is a little bit outlandish, if people keep on saying, no, you can't do it, no, you can't do it, then you know you have to overcome quite a hurdle. But if people are always supporting you, like my mother was always willing to take another card. If I said, mom, take a card. Okay, whatever she was doing. Uh, you know, it wasn't ever a... a a bother for her and i think that's that's part of what kind of kept me in, being encouraged was just knowing that my family was behind it uh, but then as far as the micro skills obviously the sleight of hand it's like practicing the piano or practicing any practicing the violin it's incessant practice and you know I, during school i had cards and coins in my hand i was always flicking things around between my fingers and uh and and that was part of the joy of growing up for me was was learning and i learned from not only magic books, but from there was a magic camp, a summer camp. You know how they have baseball camp yeah. and soccer yeah. camp. There is actually a magic camp for young magicians that I went to and later became a counselor at. Uh, now I go back as a guest performer. So it's just a way of giving back to these young kids. In any event, so the, the incessant practice um, and the reason that I like to so, practice. Sleight of hand was like, is that like moving the quarters between the fingers? Sure, you know? sure. Yeah, like, like that's called the steeplechase when you make the, the quarter run across your fingers. Um, the steeplechase, that, definitely that sort of thing, but also like learning how to shuffle a deck of cards. For example, I don't know if you can see this through your monitor, but I can take any deck. And by the way, I sent you a bunch of cards. I don't know if you got these, but I sent you some cards that I made. If you take a look oh, at the gosh, monitor, you'll I see. Gotta, I got to make sure they're, I, we just moved to this house. I got to find them. I, I want this. Uh, yeah, I sent uh, you, I, cause I made, I made my own branded cards. Um, and they're, they're just beautiful. They're the, the uh, top quality cards in the world. So yeah, I would gave, I sent you a couple of decks. When I did my 20th anniversary show, I made this deck, and the 5,000th show, I made this deck. So you can see those wow. beautiful logos. Anyway, um, what I've learned to do is take any deck, and you know, decks are from all different uh, qualities around the world, it, and be able to weave them together in an instant so that every card is perfectly shuffled one by one by one by one without any variations. I don't know if you can see that. But I can do this, and, and many magicians can do this, but I've learned to do this behind my back without looking, just uh -huh. by touch, and be able to create what's known as a pharaoh shuffle, where every single card is interlaced, single card, up, down, up, down, up, down, without any variation at all. And um, I could do this one-handed. I could do it behind my back, wow. uh, like I mentioned. Um, you can name a number from 1 to 52, and I can make that card be the one card that's off in the count. So in other words, if you say like 24, then I can go and weave these together, and now you can count down to the 24th card. You'll see that there's two cards right here. Do you see that? that there's yeah. two cards there instead of a single one. Uh, and that's simply because of <laughs> massive amounts of practice. So the practice itself is the joy. And you know they say that the journey is the destination, right? Um, you know, that enjoying the, 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 the practice is actually, for me, um, has become part of my the whole magic experience because then when i go in front of an audience i'm utterly relaxed i'm never doing something that i haven't done thousands of times before so that's that's what gives you the the, the utter confidence to walk in front of a stranger and show them something that is essentially a confrontation wow so like how many hours do you think you actually were practicing some form of sleight of hand or shuffling or whatever no exaggeration i have cards in my hand morning noon and night i've been doing magic every day since i was six 
when I leave the house, I have a deck of cards in my jacket pocket or in my in my bag. And it actually gives me a sense of confidence. Like I'll pat my pocket to feel that there's a deck of cards in there. And I know that it gives me confidence because I could be anywhere and start a show if I had to. And I'm a little bit less inclined to do that now. But you know, when I was younger, especially in trying to make my mark and being in New York City, which as you know is a big city, but it's also a small village, you tend to tend to meet similar people all the time. People have seen you, people have heard about you. So people would stop me on the street and I get stopped all the time. People would say, hey, you're the magician. Can you show me something? And if you're not ready to do something, you're like, um, well, actually, I don't have my doves with me. <laughs> you know. So having a deck of cards has always given me that uh, extra sense of confidence. So when you graduated college, did you move to New York and start trying to be a magician? Like, what was your first kind of leap into the into it as a career? Uh, yeah, so after Cornell, um, actually, at Cornell, I met my future wife. Uh, she's Japanese. And uh, so we moved to Japan together. And I actually speak Japanese at a native level. So when I went to Tokyo, I was working first as a um, as a translator and English teacher for a short time. But then I ended up getting a gig working at the Park Hyatt Tokyo, which if you've ever been to Tokyo before, it's one of the best hotels in Asia. Um, so I ended up performing there for some really heavy hitters because of the clientele. And the thing that I learned from that experience, James, was when I was working at the Park Hyatt on Sundays, um, I was also working on Fridays at this other club uh, in the Ginza area, which is also a very fancy spot, but it was a down market, kind of a pub, like a beer hall. And I was doing exactly the same magic tricks for the down market bar as I was for the highfalutin people in the penthouse floor of the Park Hyatt Hotel in Tokyo. And the reaction I was getting at the bar was not as good as I was, nearly as good as I was getting at the hotel. And I realized that the surroundings, the venue, helped to create the experience. And that planted a, a real seed in my head. Um, so when I eventually moved back to New York, I was doing a little bit of uh, you know, work here and there as a magician, but it wasn't really going anywhere until I had this idea. What if I was going to perform in someplace grand? What if I kind of made this into a very intimate and elite type of high fruit on the tree that you have to reach for event? And so I started doing the show at not a hotel yet, but at the uh, Gramercy Park National Arts Club, this beautiful, oh, yeah, beautiful club you've yeah. probably been to. Um, and so I did the show there for a couple of months. And then at the very last show, someone invited me to the Waldorf Astoria and ended up doing the show there for 17 years. Wow. So it was pretty. So you basically learned what your environment was. And then how did you get um, in Gramercy Park? Did you just. Did you, did they ask you, did you approach them or did you rent the room? Yeah, and, I'm, like, I'm a, you, you know, at, at heart, I'm an entrepreneur. So like everything mm -hmm. I've done has been self-produced. Um, you know, people have asked me, okay, will you come and perform at the Magic Castle where you come and perform at my comedy club or wherever. But I like to do things in my own environment because to me, that's part of what the experience is. And I learned mm -hmm. that from that, that dichotomy that I told you about in the bar and the, and the fancy hotel in Tokyo. Um, so, so, you know, doing the show in the penthouse of the Waldorf Astoria, where people are going into this special lobby, the Waldorf Towers, where only the president usually comes in with the Secret Service. And you're going up in an elevator up to the 42nd floor, walking down this hallway. Like everything you're going through is a, is a picture frame, a mental picture frame. And each picture frame gets more and more grand until you're walking into this room where the Duke and Duchess of Windsor used to live half of the year. You know, and they've got their grand piano and their tapestries and, and whatnot. It's just, you know, the environment, even before the show starts, has set you up to say, this is going to be something else. It transports you. And that's where I think magic needs to be. It needs to be kind of a transported world. 
so that you, you're feeling that you're living in a dream, even though that you're awake. I'm wondering that's a little from your personality and that you're, you like the grandness of those situations, but like take someone like Chris Angel, his personality might be more where he likes the, the dive bar performing there something sure. like that. Sure. I mean, again, everyone is their own artist, right? And you, your artist, your, your artistic mind speaks to you. Your heart leads you in the direction that, uh, that speaks to your, your, your story. And, you know, I realized that my story happens to be one of that. I grew up in, surrounded by wealth. I wasn't a wealthy guy, but I grew into it. And, you know, creating the Millionaire's Magician character actually has, for me, um, defined my business in such a, to such a kind of laser focus that, am I a millionaire? Yeah, the, the business has turned into an incredibly lucrative one. Um, but only because I was able to kind of pair away, like we talked about before, things that were extraneous. I wasn't, if someone said to me, okay, would you want to come and do a show at the dive bar? Now I would just simply say, no, it's not for me. If someone says, would you like to perform on stage for you know, for 5,000 people um, and we'll pay you an exorbitant fee, the answer is going to be no, because I know I'm not the right person for that. And now I did do a show, having said that, at Carnegie Hall. I'm one of the first magicians in about 75 years to do a, a one-man show at Carnegie Hall. Um, wow. But that was that was the smaller hall. They have a 250-seat theater. Um, so I did a, and that show sold out in about two hours, which is really very flattering. Um, but but having said that, though, I kind of know my limits, and I think that's partially what an artist needs to be able to do is to know where you excel and to put yourself into that environment. Yeah, like what what would you say are your limits? Like, let's say what separates you from, for instance, a David Blaine who has, you know, really hit this you know a list celebrity factor. Sure. Well, you know, David and I have known each other since we were fourteen. We both met at the. Yeah, you mentioned camp. you were you were a consultant to him as well. I was a consultant on one of his show, two of his shows, and and then also we've known each other as friends since we were fourteen years old because we met at the Magic Camp that I told you about. Uh, we were both campers <laughs> there, which is hilarious. Um, and he's been very supportive and very gracious over the years. When my first son was born, David Blaine sent us a beautiful uh, baby gift, which is something you don't usually give, but he gave us a cashmere outfit, all cashmere for my son, for my baby and a cashmere teddy, teddy bear. Um, and so if, you know, if you have kids, which I know you, you do, you know, having, uh, having to wash uh, vomit out of cashmere is not really that much fun. Um, but anyway, so going back to David Blaine, he's been great, greatly supportive, really good friend. Um, but, but we focus on different things. I'm trying to create a fantasy of, uh, of your meeting a master of magic. In his world, in his case, I think that David Blaine is already considered to be um, a magician, but he's showing things that are human oddities or things that shouldn't be able to be done by the human body, um, but he's able to pull them off nonetheless, like sticking a spike through his bicep or swallowing frogs or staying underwater for 15 minutes. Uh, you know, these are things that people shouldn't be able to do, but he's able to do it. And I remember going to see David Blaine's show in, um, in Brooklyn. When he did a show at the King's Theater several years back. And I was on a subway coming home from Brooklyn. And there were a bunch of people in the subway car that recognized me because they said, oh, we've been to your show at the Waldorf Astoria. Oh, we're glad we have you here. Tell us how David Blaine did everything. I said, I'd be happy to. It's easy. He just did it. He swallowed <laughs> the frogs. He stayed underwater. He stuck a, ne a needle through his bicep. And so, you know, I'm happy to help him, uh, you know, perpetuate his myth because he's doing the real work. And, you know, in my case, I remember I've done the bullet catch. You didn't, unfortunately, you didn't get my, my new book, but there's a whole chapter in there about when I did the bullet catch trick uh, for my TV special on the History Channel. 
And I ended up in the hospital because there are some oh. things. I ended up with a, a piece of a shard of glass that was between me and the shooter. The glass shattered. The glass came straight at my chest, shattered at, at my uh, my bicep and my, uh, my my pecs. And I ended up with this massive blood tumor that kept on growing. Um, and I had to go to the hospital to explain it to the doctor about how I got shot by a, a bullet and caught did, the bullet did, in my teeth. Did so you have to stop the show? I it, that was fortunately a TV show, so we were able to just stop the stop the shoot right there. But we captured everything on camera. You saw me go down. You saw me go to the hospital. It was pretty crazy. Um, but but the reason I bring that up is that having done that, having risked my life, and having learned that yes, this has consequences. Now I stick to the illusion of danger, the illusion of, uh, yeah. of of some sort of suspense, so that this way there's no true danger to myself, or my family, because this is not a blood sport. It shouldn't be. It's meant to be entertainment. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. You know, you mentioned earlier you have the gift of gab and you realize it early on. And I like some of your suggestions for people in terms of um, taking command of the audience or the situation. Uh, you have this one ask a personal question back. So if someone gives you a compliment, you turn the conversation back to them. Like if someone says, you're the best magician I've ever seen, you say, thank you. Have you been, ever been to Las Vegas? You'd love the shows out there. So I, I like this technique. Yeah, this is something I, I really re highly um, recommend that people check out. You know, there's, there's a magician who I actually learned these ideas from originally um, from, I believe he lives in New Mexico now or perhaps Arizona, named Kenton Nepper. He put out a, a booklet in a series that was called Wonder Words. And his idea was that you can take verbal patterns and make these um, do some dirty work for you. And uh, one of those is the method that you just mentioned, which is to kind of respond with a question. Because, you know, really, if you're always absorbing this praise, right, it makes you feel good, but it makes the other person feel like they're left out. So you can then flip it back to the other person. They give you praise. Give them something, some uh, thanks, but then respond with a question back to them. And finally, it, it will ultimately include them back in the conversation. Another Wonder Words technique that I think is really great is uh, combining two commands with the word and between them. And the, the example uh, would be, for example, let's say I have a piece of rope. And I say to someone in the audience, sir, would you please hold this piece of rope? The guy can say no, right? He might say, no, I don't, I don't really want to hold this rope. Uh, if I say to this, this gentleman, sir, please stand up, right? He might be like, why would I want to stand up? It would be an embarrassment in front of all these people. I don't want to put myself in the limelight. But if you say those two commands with the word and between them, sir, please stand up and hold this rope. Invariably, they will not have any hesitation. They'll stand up and hold the rope. It's like clockwork. And the reason is because we can't, it's easy to deny one command, but not two. 
you've seen this in practice. Like you've, you've seen it where if you give one command, a higher percentage of people will say no than if you give two commands. Oh, all the time. I mean, this is, this is the whole show. I'm doing it and people are not even aware of it. So, you know, I mean, some, I mean, the basic example would be, you know, please take any card and show it to your friends. That's an easy one, right? You know, I've had other people say, no, I'm not going to show it to anyone, but take any card and show it around or take a card and put it in your pocket. This way, I know they're going to take it without looking and put it into their pocket. So by just stringing two commands together, they don't, it, it just short circuits the ability to deny either one of them. You could try it with your kids. You know, for example, you can say to them, you know, take out the trash and mow the lawn. I mean, maybe they're not going to do both of those, but you know, uh, you know, do your homework and, uh, and, you know, uh, I'm just thinking this. My kids don't do their homework, so <laughs> this is not going to work. Good for them, by the way. But you get, you get, yeah, thanks a lot. Uh, but you get the idea. You know, just try it. You know, for, here's a better example. So, um, you know, uh, put away the dishes and um, and hang up your laundry. You know, it's those may be too much of a distraction, but you you'll just experiment. And you'll find ways to get your children to say no less. I wonder how you can use this uh, technique in comedy. You know, um, I've never. Try, you're 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 definitely a better joke writer than me. So I because I don't I don't I, I don't know your 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 act was very funny by the way. I was thinking you're a natural comedian. Thank you, thank you. You know it, it's it's funny you say that. You know I don't see myself as a funny person. I watch comedians like you, and you know I'm I'm in awe of the ability just to stand on stage without any props and be able to command an audience and just keep the rhythm and the flow going. So I I commend you on that, and you're really a master of that. Oh, thank you. Uh, what, what other comedians do you like? Oh, you mean aside from you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, one of one of my big. I've actually tried to get her to come to the show. I had um, Peter Sagel from from NPR. Wait, wait, don't tell me. Came to my show once, and um, and I was thrilled. You know, he's he was just so so great. And I asked him if he could help me get uh, Paula Poundstone to come to the show. And I've tried to get her to come, and she still hasn't come yet. But I really like Paula Poundstone's ability yeah, to do funny. to do yeah. crowd work. She's so good at that. And that yeah. one of the, the parts of, of my show, Shaper Magic, is 20 minutes of crowd work where I'm doing that mind reading segment I mentioned earlier. And the ability to just stand on your feet, not know where you're going, and really just um, be an artist in person is, for me, just a joy to watch. So I, I love seeing people like, like Paula Townsend do that. Now, you also have the the or technique, which is a technique actually I've used, and now I realize it was a, it's for after reading your book that it's an actual technique. But you want to describe that one? Um, yeah. Well, I mean, how have you used it before? I could explain it, but could, how have you used it? Okay, so like if I'm giving a talk, and I might approach the audience and say, "Listen, I came prepared with three different talks. I could talk about, um, let's say, Bitcoin or entrepreneurship." or your relationships. And I always know, um, and then I'll say them again and I'll use the or and, and I'll, I'll, I'll they'll, they'll have to clap for each one that they want. I always know that they're going to pick the last one. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. You know, oftentimes there's you know, the, the idea of primacy and recency, right? And so the recent, the most recent one that they hear, which is the last one is the one that they'll clap for the most. It's kind of a common thing in that sort of way, you put your hands over people's heads, you know, on stage, the last guy will be the one that usually gets the most applause. Um, but the way that I use the word or is when you're offering someone a, a almost like a false uh, option. So for example, would you like to shuffle these cards or, and the person goes, no, don't worry about it. And the answer, oh, I see. I the, see what you're the saying. word after the or they fill in in their own head, which is the word not. So would you like to shuffle yeah. these cards or, and then in parentheses, not. 
And the people respond, they fill in that last word in their own head, even though you don't say it yourself. So we'd like to- What if they're these, waiting for you to finish the sentence? They're waiting for you to finish the sentence and then they complete it for me. And, and that seems like they made their own decision. So for them, would you like to shuffle these cards or and I shrug my shoulders? And they go, no, don't worry about it. I say, okay, terrific. Well, you had the chance. And you know, maybe maybe I didn't want them to shuffle the cards because I have them set up a special way or or arranged, or maybe there's uh, you know something, some order that I, I've uh, I preordained. Maybe the top card is one that I want to keep there. For for example, for example, if I wanted to do a second deal and keep the top card on top while pretending to deal off the top card and dealing the second card instead. So if I say to the person, would you like to shuffle the cards or and they go, no, okay, terrific. And I'm all set for my next demonstration. And it feels like I gave them the chance. Yeah, yeah, no, that's interesting. And then what's like a, what do you, what would you say is like a real world situation where you can use this? Oh, yeah, I don't remember what I wrote in the book. Maybe you, you've read it more recently than I have. This book, you know, um, I wrote a, quite some time ago. But um, was there an example that stood out to you? I could, I could go back to some of the examples I had included in the book. I just don't remember off the top of my head. I, I call this uh, the or trailing. Cause like you're basically, you're starting a sentence and then you're not really finishing it. Yeah. So, um, let me see. I'm going to, I'm going to find it in the book. Uh, Oh, here it is. I got it. I got it. This, this is a yeah. good example. I just found it. I have my own book in front of me as a reminder. Um, so for example, let's say that you're, you're having, uh, I don't know, some French fries or some, uh, you know, you're having calamari with your friends at a restaurant and there's one piece of calamari left. There's one, one calamari that's on the tray. And you say, would you like to eat the last one or? <laughs> yeah. Right. And the people go, no, one. don't worry. Go ahead. Right. Right. Or Everybody's going to say no. A little bit early or. No, go ahead. You're all finished here. You see what I yeah, mean? Yeah. So like, it's, it's, it's not as hard as you think to come up with a, a solution. You have to just think about what you want and then kind of throw the word or in there. Um, so that they say, no, they say not. So for example, you know, is there a problem with this or. The person, no, no, there's no problem. You see, so there's there's lots of different ways you can you can create uh, examples of, of, in that in, a, in your daily life. And so and so you know, ha in the book, there's a little uh, paragraph where you mention David Blaine. You're working with David Blaine, and he gave you advice. He said, "Don't prepare what you're going to say. People should feel like you're talking to them for the first time." And yet, when you're doing five thousand shows, how do you, how do you avoid seeming to over prepared? Yeah, that's it's a real challenge. You know, you've probably seen either Las Vegas performers or um, probably comedians as well that they have almost a sing-song voice when they're reciting their script or their lines because they've done yeah. it so many times that it's not. It doesn't sound it, it genuine. It feels acted, anymore. right? It's, it's yeah. just it's it's just totally put on. It's totally you know pre preordained, and you know that's one of the big challenges I had to overcome. Uh, when I was about maybe three quarters of the way through those 5,000 shows, um, I realized, man, I'm getting burnt out. I'm saying the same things over and over again. I'm like a machine. And that's so dangerous when you put yourself into that state of mind. So the way that I do it, and this is, you know, I've, this is not my own idea, is to think there's someone in this audience, maybe a little boy, that had to save up a lot of money. Maybe he had to save his, his allowance for, you know, for three months to be able to pay for one ticket to be sitting here. And I owe it to that little boy to give him a fresh performance because there's, this is the first time I'm ever going to perform this. And this is going to be the last time I'm ever going to perform it in front of these people. So it has to be genuine. And so I've convinced myself, I basically convinced myself, I'm going to have fun. I'm not going to go out there and make it sound like I've done this before. And if I feel like I'm having fun, it'll come off as fresh. So the way I learned it really was in high school when we used to have 
uh, performances in my theater club. Uh, I was a member of the my high school's uh, theater company. And so we would do three or, I think, three or four shows per weekend. And our theater director, who was a really talented director, a guy named Phil Stewart, um, who also taught people like Vanessa Williams and, and Harrison Ford when they were younger, uh, he, he said to us, look, go out there and make it fresh. Convince yourself this is a fresh audience. You're going to perform it fresh. And so I just keep the word fresh in my head. And I just try to remember this is not about my experience. It's about the audience's experience. And um, you know, all this stuff is so fascinating to me because it's it's both genuine and it's a technique. So like, I love the the left to right technique and I'm gonna start incorporating it in my, like let's say public speaking or comedy, but you could even incorporate it potentially in, you know, any social situation, but describe the left to right principle. Sure, so, you know, we, as a Western culture, we read from left to right, okay? And maybe if you're, in another country, in Israel, for example, it would be the opposite. Um, but you know, since we feel most comfortable seeing things from left to right, it often would help if you presented your information in that order, not from your own perspective, but from your audience's perspective. Remember, your right is the audience's left. So it doesn't make sense if you're going to present, let's say, let's say you're a salesman and you have three different products you're going to be presenting to your client: the least expensive, the medium, and the most expensive. And if you put them onto the table in front of or between you, and the most expensive one is to your right, and the least expensive one is to your left, for you, it would feel like a natural progression. Let's start from the left and go to the right. But to the audience, that would feel backwards. It would feel, like I mentioned before, some cognitive dissonance, because you're not starting in the, what would be the natural progression. So make sure that you're seeing things from the audience's perspective and beginning on the left and always going to the right. And if you're, let's say you're giving a performance or a presentation, let's say you're giving a talk or you're a comedian, and you start your your presentation and you're on your left side of the stage, the stage left, um, it's not going to feel as comfortable as if you were starting on stage right, which is the audience's left, right? So it, in fact, I would try to enter the stage. I, I try to, at least if I can, I like to enter from the audience's left. And this way it feels like the beginning of a story. Right, the beginning of the story starts here. The ending of the story will end at the other side of the stage, and I move slightly to the left, my left, their right, throughout the performance. It just feels like they can remember different vignettes happening, and they happen in different places on the stage. How, how many people do you think know that? Like, how many performers use that technique? I've never even heard of this. Well, I mean, if you're a stage director, you would you would be familiar with this for sure. But as a as a regular you know, a college professor probably wouldn't know it. A, a comedian might not know it, but that's why we're all here, right? We're trying to learn something new. I mean, I'm not saying I'm the be all end all of stage technique, but I've just done it a lot and have learned interesting, uh, you know, tidbits along the way. And I've experimented a lot. You know, I've, I've been a failure for a really long time. So, you know, I've tried all sorts of things until it finally started to click. And then I started to go back and say, well, why did that work? Oh, I see, because I was standing in this area of the stage. Maybe if I do it again on that area of the stage, I'll find similar success. So you know, even just your physical location in the room can change the direction or the flow of a performance or a presentation. You know, it, it's it's also fascinating, like I could go on and on, like I encourage, there's the chapters on reading people. You give all these exercises too for building confidence, like, um, you know, go when you next time you go to a movie theater, go to the very front of the theater and just 
stare back at the audience. You know, you could even pretend you're looking for someone, but stare back at the audience for as long as you can handle it because it feels very uncomfortable. Sure. And you have all sorts of like exercises that are real world exercises that people could do. Can and, I give you one that uh, I think is really, really fun to try, especially on a crowded yeah. street in New York City or wherever you happen to be? Um, it's the one that you might remember. It's called the, um, it's called the, the, the uh, t 10 Steps in Blindness. And so basically what you do is, and this is to, to take in more information. I, I do this because as a magician, you sometimes have to take in a lot of information in a short amount of time and remember it. So that later on, you can spew that information back out in a more measured way. But what I like to do to kind of get that massive amount of information in like a shutter of a camera is when I'm walking down the street, you know, I close my eyes for nine steps and open my eyes up only on step number 10. And then close my and I take in as much as I possibly can during that one split second, and then close my eyes again and walk another nine steps and then open my eyes again. And if you do this, I've done this in crowded places like Grand Central Station. You try to avoid getting bumped into, but if you're you're going to start off obviously in some place a little less risky, like inside of a park or someplace that you're not going to trip or fall. So so also fascinating stuff. And there's there's obviously there's so much more in in the book. Um, and I know this one was written a while, a while ago. It's called Win the Crowd. What's What's the book that you have? You know, and I just tried to find it on Amazon even. No, this it's book little... is not, yeah, the next book is called Confronting Magic. It just came out in January. It's not on Amazon. Uh, Asseline, uh, I'm holding it up to the camera for you to see it. Uh, Asseline yeah. is a really high-end book publisher for coffee table books. Uh, it's spelled A-S-S-O-U-L-I-N-E. And so Asseline- A-S-S-O-U-L-I-N-E. Right. And so they they put out you probably heard of Tashin those really big you know beautiful yeah. coffee table books. Asseline is a competitor and they've been in, in the business for like 30 40 years. So it's a really established company. Their books sell for like $1000 a piece. This is not one of those. This one sells for 60. <laughs> so it's bargain basement. But it, it's it's covered in silk. This is actually if you can see it the, the cover is made of silk and um mm -hmm. the uh, the book as I mentioned has the forward from Guillermo del Toro the film director. Um uh, it's filled with photos of people who have the experience of watching magic and in fact i show different tricks in here like my think a drink you remember that trick james when i have a tea kettle that pours any drink that you ask for over and oh, over again oh, around yeah, the room? yeah so they, yeah they that was pictures amazing actually of the, yeah there's pictures of the audience experiencing that and if someone asks for a martini they get a martini but the next guy asks for a gin and tonic he gets a gin and tonic next guy from that wants to have a you know a, a hot chocolate with mini marshmallows he gets a hot chocolate with mini marshmallows out of the same spout the next guy wants to have, you know, a uh, a Manhattan with with uh, bullet rye bourbon, or bullet rye, and they get that. So, you know, it's it's pretty amazing that that, that trick is is highlighted in here, as well as the Indian rope trick, which I saw when I was in India. I've got a whole chapter about that, and all the celebrities I performed for. You know, like the, the list goes on and on. But there's a lot of cool photos of people being shocked, and uh, also huh. there's a lot of essays about magic that are included. Oh, that sounds wonderful. I'm definitely, if I, if I don't already have it, I'm definitely getting it. Well, you so. have it. I sent it to you. Maybe you didn't get it. You didn't open it yet, but it's definitely somewhere in your palatial house. Yes. And, uh, my, my, I don't know if I would call it palatial, but, uh, do, do, you live in New York city, right? Yeah. Obviously. I'm on the Upper West side, not far from your comedy club. Oh yeah. Cause I've seen you at the comedy club. We've, we've hung out there. Um, well, that was the funny thing uh, is that you have, you know, you're, you're, um, you collaborate with a guy named Steve Cohen, which is the same name as me. Right, yes. and I bumped into you and Steve Cohen out in front of uh, Stand Up New York. So when one time you had a pod, I listened to your podcast, James. I think that's you know that's how I first you know we first met. Yes, is yeah. I bumped yeah. into yeah, you on the other side, and you, I was listening to your podcast, and then saw you on the street 
at exactly the same moment. So it was hilarious. But when I saw a podcast on the queue list, it said, um, it said James Altucher uh, interviews Steve Cohen. I was like, shit, I must have missed that recording. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Well, there's a lot of Steve Cohen's, and you mentioned, for instance, you you perform in front of the 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 multi billionaire Steve Cohen as well. Yeah, I've performed for Steve Cohen, who owns the Mets now. I've performed for him three times, and um, the funny thing is, you know, I did one trick for him, which was probably the wrong trick to do. Uh, I took a, a dollar bill. Actually, I think I had like four or five dollars, and I changed them all into hundred dollar bills. And, yeah, and everyone like, else around him difference? was like, "Wow, that's amazing!" <laughs> and he's like, "Hey, I do that every every single day." <laughs> Well, he's got a good sense of humor. Yeah, he's, so, he's, a, he's a great guy. And so, where 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 are you performing now? How's it going with COVID and stuff? Like, what are you where, where are you performing? So during during you? the pandemic, I purposely decided not to perform anywhere. Um, I performed zero online performances, zero digital shows, zero outdoor performances. Uh, what I did do though is I wrote this book from Asseline, which is a, it's a a real piece of artwork that we worked on really hard. And also a 500-page book, which is coming out in August, um, about Max Molini, who happens to be my hero. He's the magician who used to plant the cards all over the world, like behind the grandfather clock yeah. pendulum. So I've done oh, a deep forward dive well, you, into his life. You have to come back on the podcast when that comes out as well. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I hope you get, we get a chance to do that again. And then when, when things settle down, where where do you think you'll be performing? Well, well um, contrary to some people's belief that New York City is dead, um, <laughs> I've actually decided to reopen, uh, my show chamber magic and it's already contracted. We're starting on June 4th. So June 4th, oh, 2021 is the reopening day. We're doing the first performance, uh, for, as a free event for first line, uh, responders. So they'll have a oh. chance to be thanked. And that's my way of giving back. I did the same thing during, uh, 9-11. I did the same thing for first responders down in, in the, the, um, world trade center area. But it's just my way of saying thank you. So that first show is is on June the fourth. But then we're doing shows every single weekend, Friday and Saturday, seven o'clock and nine thirty p.m. at the Lotte New York Palace on Fiftieth Street and Madison Avenue. Same location. Yeah, that's where I, that's where I saw you several yep. years ago. Mm -hmm, that's right. It's great. Uh, we both looked a lot uh, younger and, then. Yeah, and then um, okay. So how could people find the book? They go to um, assoulline dot com. Yeah, the new the new book is from Asseline. So Asseline dot com. It's also on my website, and if you know people get it from me directly, I could autograph it to you if that means anything to you. Um, and that's chambermagic.com. So um, that's where you can find information about my shows too. And the, the, actually, it's nice to have a calendar, a live calendar again, where people can actually buy yeah. tickets. But the shows are reopening on the same website, chambermagic.com. Oh, and the, and win the crowd, by the way, the the book that you read, um, that was that book came out several years back. Uh, that's on Amazon. You can get it as an ebook. You can get it as a, hardcover or softcover. There's all sorts of versions. It's been translated into seven languages. Well, it's it's amazing. And I'm sure I'm, gonna, I'm looking forward to uh, confronting magic as well. And Thank then you. this next book, the the book about Max Molini. And uh, I should change my name to Kohini. Yeah, well, Houdini, right? Took his name from... from Robert Houdin. Yeah, right. Robert Houdin. Uh, uh, hey, one time I, I got an award. This uh, a little bit, if you allow me, a little bit of bragging. I got an award yeah. from the National Arts Club, that group I told you about. Uh, it was like a lifetime achievement award for the art of magic. And um, the guy who gave me the award was Dick Cavett, the famous old time talk ah. show host who I'm really fond of. So it was a great honor. And one of the things he said is that when he was younger, he actually um, was friends with Johnny Carson. And Johnny Carson used to be called the great Carsoni. 
And so, oh yeah, because he was a, a, he was a magician, amateur magician. He was a very talented sleight of hand guy. And Dick Cavett also does some sleight of hand magic, particularly with rope tricks. So Dick Cavett called himself the Great Cavetti. And then he says, huh. "Aren't we glad that uh, the Great Cohini doesn't quite work?" Yeah, that's funny. It wouldn't, it wouldn't work. Well, thank you once again, uh, Steve Cohen. You can find him at the Palace. You can find his latest book, Confronting Magic, at Asseline.com or ChamberMagic.com. And I also highly recommend uh, Win the Crowd. And I'm looking forward to your, your next visit to the podcast. Thanks again, Steve. Oh, thanks so much, James. It's great to talk to you again. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply.